BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. What's the matter? Don't you like folks? Oh, I like them fine, but a computer takes less space. I've got my own system. Books, young man, books, thousands of them. If time wasn't so important, I'd show you something. My library, thousands of books. Welcome, everyone, to the Positively Trek Book Club, uh, an episode of which there hasn't been in a while. We're working on changing that, but uh, I'm so excited to have my co-host for the book club returning once again. Jesse Earl, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for, so much for having me. I'm always ready to talk more Star Trek books, so I am I am very excited, especially a new one, which we don't get yes. often enough. <laughs> Absolutely, a new release, Star Trek the Original Series, Harm's Way, by veteran New York Times best-selling Star Trek author David Mack, who is also joining us here today. David, welcome back. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. Always happy to have you on. And, and like you said, new Star Trek novel. It's a rarity these days. Hopefully that changes in the next few months. But uh, for now, yeah, this is uh, one of the few we get to talk about. I think one of like two or three in 2022, I think, just kind of catching the tail end of the year. Yeah, so. I'm, not, I'm not sure why the program, you know, sort of cratered the way it did in 2022. I, I don't think it was intentional. I had to guess. I would say part of it was due to the negotiations that were going on between Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster, who were looking at, at one point to merge before the uh, Department of Justice stepped in with an antitrust suit and mm. blocked it. And I think that because they weren't sure how that merger was going to affect things like the media tie-in licenses at both uh, publishers, with Penguin Random House being the parent company, I believe, to Del Rey, which controls Star Wars. And then you have Simon & Schuster running Star Trek, uh, having both under one roof. Who knows if that's a problem? Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, were they going to consolidate their uh, their editorial staffs for media tie-ins? You know, was it going to create redundancies? Were people going to get let go? Nobody knew. And I think that because they suddenly were completely, you know, head over, you know, ass over teacups and had no idea what was going to happen, who was going to be laid off, 
what the org structure was going to be, it put on hold the renegotiation of the Star Trek publishing license because that didn't get finalized. I think it's maybe getting finalized right now, but it basically blew up the whole negotiation because suddenly no one knew what would happen. And I'm pretty sure the only reason Harm's Way is on your bookshelves now is because about a year ago, December last year, I invited editors Ed Schlesinger and Margaret Clark out for lunch. The ostensible reason was, hey, I haven't seen you guys in ages because of COVID. We're all shut-ins. But, you know, Star Trek Coda is coming out. And we, you know, me and the guys who wrote it, Dayton Ward and uh, James Swallow, uh, we had these cool sort of t-shirts made up, uh, you know, wormhole death cannon, which was you know, the name of our <laughs> private chat channel where we were plotting all this out for years. Just murdering everybody. Yeah. Right. And we had like, you know, funny tour dates. So it was like, it was done up like a concert tour t-shirt. That's really uh, cool. So it had this cool graphic on the front and then it had the tour dates on the back and it was all in jokes from the, from the trilogy. And we made only a limited number of them. You know, we each got one, and I think we made one for our copy editor, Scott Pearson. We made one for uh, a couple of other authors who contributed and you know, sort of were involved in the development process. Uh, we made one for John Van Sitters, uh, the uh, global VP of Star Trek brand development, who approved the whole thing. And then we made a couple for our editors. Basically to say, you know, thanks for letting us do this, yada, yada. So that was the ostensible reason I invited them to lunch was to give them their T-shirts, give them their (laughs) gifts. And while I had them there, I said, by the way, do you have any work? (laughs) Can I write a book while I'm here? Why don't I just bring that up and throw that on the table? And it turns out they said, well, you know, as long as you're here, uh, yeah, sure. We could have you do a book next year. If you can do it quickly, I'm like, I can always do it quickly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so what do you need? And Ed Schlesinger, you know, the managing editor who's in charge of, you know, just sort of making the whole thing run. He said, well, what we would really like is an original series novel that crosses over with your work on Vanguard. We'd like to, you know, sort of bring Vanguard back. So it was by editorial request. And I was like, well, that's pretty cool. I would love to do that. I'm curious what the motivation is behind that. He says, well, you know, we've been doing these monthly ebook sales, and we've noticed whenever we do like an ebook special initiative pushing Vanguard, they sell really well. This thing still has legs. It ended like oh, wow. nine years ago at that point, 10 years now. It's been over for 10 years, but the back, you know, the back issues, you know, the, the, the backlist titles for Vanguard still sell. It's you know, got a long tail. It's, you know, it's been slowly building this cult audience but it does continue to grow through word of mouth. So they said, you know, what we'd like to try is an original series branded book that crosses over with Vanguard. Let's see if we can get some of the Vanguard people to sort of sample TOS, get some of our TOS readers to get a taste of Vanguard, see if we can cross-pollinate those two audiences. I was like, I'm, I'm down with that. Let's, let's try that. And it was fun for me because I love the TOS characters. I love Spock and Kirk and the whole Enterprise gang and the classic Enterprise. That was my Enterprise growing up. But I also love Vanguard. I, I love what Dayton and Kevin and Marco Palmieri and I, you know, what we created on Vanguard. And so a chance to come back and revisit that, that universe, those characters, those situations with Kirk and his crew in the mix. It was too great an opportunity to resist. So I was 
I was like, I'm all in. <laughs> so yeah. I, cr- I cranked that book out in record time. I think I wrote that book in 53 days. Wow. Dang. Okay. Very, wow. That's very fast. Impressive. <laughs> I, mean, I cranked to get that thing done on the schedule they wanted. I mean, that's not including the time that was spent on the outline developing the story. But once I dug into manuscript, I'm pretty sure I turned it around in about 53 days. That's impressive. And, uh, it was just lightning speed. But part of it was I was having so much fun. It was just such a fun book to write that I just dug in and just uh, let myself go. And I just loved every minute of it. You can definitely tell. It's a lot of fun to read. So, <laughs> well, aside from a few jokes, obviously that didn't land. <laughs> I was wondering if you'd bring that up. Uh, <laughs> for, for, well, you for know, you take your chances. You throw your bread upon the water. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it comes back to unfold. Sometimes it comes back as mold. You don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, for for listeners, I, I do uh, I do individual book reviews on my on my YouTube channel, and I gave a very glowing review. You said generally positive. I thought it was a pretty positive review. I try not oversell <laughs> um, I, I manage I did, expectations <laughs> but i did criticize the humor it was the one one part of the book that i wasn't wasn't not the all the humor. you just didn't like that one line right that one line yeah you're not as thinky as you drunk i am <laughs> so one line one line out of a book of 108,000 so words whole star whole star for that one joke that I'd oh taken come away from on <laughs> that's so unfair I do have to admit, when I read that line, I kind of rolled my eyes. But in that, like, oh, uh, like groaner, like I, I chuckled. The idea it. is that you even know, the Klingons have their stupid dad jokes. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. It's like yeah. it's like he's not above it. It's like you know, yes, they do. They have dumb dad jokes just like we do. Uh, well, I still rolled my eyes. So, <laughs> but, I mean, I figure, you know, you, you, okay, fine. So, yeah, you, that one didn't work. But I mean, there were so many other great moments where these people are sniping at each other. And it's, like, fair, you know, when, yes. it's like, you know, you're not much good to me alive, are you? You know, <laughs> <laughs> or when they're arguing, you know, down in the pit, uh, yeah, everybody's sniping at everybody else and blaming everyone else for why they're down there. That was a fun little moment of finger wagging. It's like, yeah, it's oh, your yeah. fault. Look, I try to make sure I'm an objective critic, so I look for things and see. Sometimes I overcorrect. All right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that you know. You, I think there was another reviewer who also pulled out that one line and really just really? dinged me for that one line. I'm like, really? You pull out the one, the one groaner. Joke? <laughs> you pull out the one groaner in a book of a hundred eight thousand words. Really? Come on. You know, nobody bats a thousand. No one's going to ever let you live it down. You make nobody one bats a thousand. Yeah. If, you're, if you're batting 375, you're in the majors. I mean, come on. You don't even have to have 500. You don't have to like hit 500. Even if less than half the jokes hit, I still think that's good enough. You know what? I have to be a critic. I'm going to double down. You know what? I'm taking two stars away from you if you're being overly sensitive about it. Well, if you're going to do that, you got to give me one star back because you made the title wrong in the headline of your uh, YouTube post. Oh, my gosh. You put in harm's way. Uh You put the the preposition in front of it. (laughs) So I think I get a star back for that. Look, I don't have editors, all right? I don't have people double checking my work. (laughs) I got to actually fix that right now. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This episode of Positively Trek would not be possible without the support of those of you who have gone to patreon.com slash positivelytrek and signed up to become a Patreon supporter of the show. Thank you all so very much for your donations. They truly do help bring this show to you each week. Thank you especially to our Constitution class supporters, Joyce Marin, Jim Stoffel, Jesse Earle, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, and Paul D. Kinnear. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show, go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You can get perks such as early access to episodes, ad-free versions of episodes, exclusive content, shoutouts, associate producer credits, and much more. Once again, that's patreon.com slash positivelytrek. Thank you all once again. And now, let's get back to the show. Well, um, I'm going to say right here, we're going to jump right into spoilers, I think, because I, I feel like this one in particular, we're going to be jumping all over the novel and talking about all kinds of stuff. So here's your official warning, listeners. Uh, spoilers ahead. Pause the podcast. Go buy this book if you haven't already. Read it. It's it's fun. We're going to have a great discussion. You'll, I think, you'll groan so. at least one time, but otherwise you'll <laughs> generally enjoy it. <laughs> Absolutely. You'll laugh. You'll cry. It'll become a part of you. It's better than cats. One hundred percent. Better than cats. That's, that's always a good bar to clear. Well, I, first of all, the idea of returning to Vanguard, I mean, that, that blows my mind. I love that they approached you with that idea because that was kind of one of my first wonderings was who came up with that idea. And as a huge fan of Vanguard, I loved that series so much. I was like, you know, when it came out, there was no Star Trek on television. And I was like, you know, HBO, make this series, please, because it's it's so good. And Jesse, I was actually wondering, you have read the Vanguard series? I did. I read them when they came out years and years and years ago. So I think I was in, still in high school. Sorry to make you feel old. Um, when, they <laughs> <I am> were, <laughs> when they were coming out. So this was actually an interesting experience for me because I had not returned to them. I didn't actually remember them super, super well since I hadn't returned to those ones specifically. So I was like, oh yeah, I remember this. Oh yeah, I remember this. Um, I think actually my last encounter with Vanguard was they came up in, um, uh, what was it? The Section 31 Control novel or the the one where Picard's on trial, actually. Was that the one? There was one oh, where they came uh, up. And that was uh, Collateral Damage. Collateral Damage, that's what it was. I know that, that there was some it, sort of it involved the Tholians. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, there was some sort of repercussions of it there. So that's what I mostly remembered off the top of my head. So I was trying to recall so it was actually a very nice refresher and actually made me want to go back and reread them so i guess the uh, the uh the cynical marketing aspect of it worked really well <laughs> and you've succeeded very very brilliantly in uh in in bringing it back so yeah and i mean obviously part of the delicate line i had to walk was making sure there was enough backstory explained in the text mm -hmm. that the reader was not lost if you haven't read like you know all eight all eight novels and the novella whatever that constitute vanguard that you wouldn't be lost. You could just jump in and appreciate this book on its own merits. But at the same time, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I didn't over explain. I didn't want to bog down the narrative and spring everything grinding to a halt. So there's that, 
that fine line you got to walk we figure out what's just enough backstory without bringing it all to a halt mm-hmm. well the story itself kind of aids you a little bit too in that it's a very classified project so right so he always has some character in the scene who's ready to be the huckleberry exactly yeah and if the reader doesn't know every last little detail of it that's also kind of by design you know they can't just blab everything the other characters the other characters don't know either yeah so. Right. I mean, essentially, I think really at that point, only Spock, Kirk, maybe Scotty have been read in mm-hmm. on uh, on Vanguard at that point because they were involved in the series first book. They were involved in Harbinger mm-hmm. uh, and some events there. So they got read in to a certain degree. But most of the crew, you know, most of your lower level guys are not going to be involved. Sulu wouldn't have been read in. Chekhov, certainly. He's an ensign. He's a low junior officer. He's not going to get read in a classified thing like that there was a another question i have on sort of that front too is since um since vanguard came out obviously we've had like modern star trek stuff and i think star trek discovery uh is probably the most pertinent to this i think you make reference to the klingon war as well uh and then strange new worlds as well too uh i'm curious if um i'm sure you probably wrote this before strange new worlds came out my assumption would be i did yeah before i saw any of strange new worlds yeah so i'm assuming discovery is probably most in your mind so what was it like um sort of having to write a new original series novel while also bringing in vanguard that was written before discovery while maybe thinking of elements of adding in discovery in there as well it's it's a tap dance you know it's very delicate and that i'm trying to make sure i don't contradict anything that i know has been established in discovery that would be known to these characters in this time period at the same time, they can't know what happened to Discovery after it vanished. Spock was always very tight-lipped about his family. I think at this point in the continuity, I don't think they've even met his parents yet. They haven't had Journey to Babel yet. Journey to Babel happened after a month time in series continuity, uh, I believe middle of season two. So the crew at this point doesn't even really know about his parents, much less his sister. So I had to try and keep references to that you know sort of under the lid so that really it's just between spock like when he gets the message from his mom which has a mention of a, a, a sly reference to cybok yes which i was like <laughs> spoilers considering what happens in other shows i was like there well i mean there's a spoiler without getting into details cybok does get mentioned and his uh sort of current state of being is an element in strange new worlds he's not ignored strange new worlds acknowledges his existence So what I had to do was during the copy editing phase of this book, after it was written, I was getting some notes back from, you know, uh, the the TV side through Kirsten Beyer, through licensing, uh, through, you know, Dayton Ward and uh, John Van Sitters and those guys. Essentially, they took some of that into account because they had that information and I didn't have it yet. And we talked it out and they said, well, here's what's going to be established. We need to gently massage the text here and here just so it doesn't conflict, but also doesn't give anything away. And so that was like, again, another high wire act where you had to find just the right way to say it, that it doesn't contradict what we've seen, doesn't spoil it, doesn't give it away, and it leaves it open enough to interpretation that they can do whatever they want on the show, and I'm still not technically wrong. So again, we had some of that going on with Strange New Worlds. We were very aware that strange new worlds could throw curveballs at our continuity at any time and i'm very lucky that we got through most of season one with the continuity mostly intact i think the only thing that may have been overwritten from a literary side i think was they did some weird stuff with the gorn but even i can fix that you know i'm like 
I'm like, yeah, you think you met the Gorn. What you met was like a weaponized Gorn attack drone or something, but not a real Gorn. Because you can't build a civilization with those things. Those are attack dogs. Those are protozenomorphs. Those are basically, they want you to think those are the Gorn. That's not the Gorn. That's the Gorn attack thing they send to clear out a planet before they send down colony people. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, that's yeah. not the Gorn. That You think it's the Gorn, it ain't the Gorn. I can fix that. I'm a tie-in writer. I look at things all the time and I go, I I can explain that. Mm -hmm. I can fix that. I feel like, you know, do you ever see the movie Wag the Dog? No, but I I know of it. Yeah, Brilliant movie where you've got uh, Dustin Hoffman playing this movie producer uh, who's got all these just horror stories, war stories from being in the trenches, making movies for 30, 40 years. And he gets brought in behind the scenes to manage this presidential crisis and run it like a movie where you're essentially constructing a narrative to influence public opinion. So they bring in a movie producer, they bring in Dustin Hoffman. And every time something goes wrong that you think is going to completely and utterly derail the whole thing, Hoffman just goes, this, this is nothing. <laughs> oh my God. I was making, you know, a song of Solomon. We, we were halfway into principal production. We found out we didn't have the rights. This is nothing. We're playing way past this. You want problems? <laughs> Try being on a jet over Italy with three starlets whacked out on Benzedrine and Grappa. This is nothing. I'm like, okay, that's that's how I feel half the time as a time writer. This is nothing. Yeah. So, we did yeah. talk a little bit about where in the series it takes place, like relative to a, um, mm-hmm. a mock time and journey to Babel. And yeah, it's set very. Well, it's actually, it's, it's about a week after the doomsday. Machine. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of really cool parallels between this story and elements of the doomsday machine that are kind of worked mm-hmm. in and stuff. And I was just kind of wondering while you were crafting the story, how early did that idea of setting it there and making those parallels, how early did that come into the the story writing process? It happened during the story outline. Part of what I was asked to do was just, again, TOS Vanguard crossover, where in the continuity was left up to me. Hmm. So what I had to do was look at the continuity of events in, you know, across the entirety of the vanguard saga and i had to say first of all all right are there any places where we left you know usable gaps are there any points of time where the activities of given ships crews personnel are unaccounted for and how does that compare against original series continuity what were they doing at that time and it turns out that our continuity in vanguard was originally very tight things were packed together not a lot of uh downtime was left between, say, Harbinger, Summon the Thunder, and Reap the Whirlwind, and then even Open Secrets. Uh, They sort of just roll one into the next, and there's not a lot of breathing room. Uh, I was really just looking for, like, any place to sort of drop something in early in the continuity, and I couldn't find one because they were just really tightly wound together. And all three crews were accounted for. You knew where the ships were, what the crews were doing. And it was just nowhere to slot in a new adventure. And the continuity and the timing of Vanguard doesn't really loosen up until you hit book five. And it's because I did something different with book five. I wasn't thinking about this at the time I wrote it, but it turned out to be a godsend here. Book five, Precipice, transpires over the course of an entire year of time. So it covers a year of continuity stretching from around sometime in season maybe two 
of uh, TOS, and it stretches somewhere until like early season three, mm-hmm. something like that. It, but it covers a pretty good you know chunk of time, and consequently, I was like, okay, so we let's see what crews I used, and I focus mo- mostly on the Endeavor crew. There's some stuff with the Klingons. There's some action going on on the station, and that was when I realized, you know, the the Sagittarius crew, the scout ship kind of falls off the radar. I didn't really have a need for them. I didn't have a story for them in Precipice. And so they just kind of fell off the radar. So there's this wide period of time unaccounted for. I'm like, well, all right, when do we know where they were? Like I had to search the text. I'm like, are they mentioned? Does somebody say where they are? Does somebody say they've been given orders? Are they doing something? And I found that and I'm like, okay, so I have this period of time from around here, like around, let's say, March of 2266. And I know the Sagittarius is not mentioned. We don't know anything about them until here in like September, October of 2266. So I've got this five, six months period wide open. I'm like, all right, so I can drop a story anywhere in here. So that was what I did is I had to go through all of Vanguard continuity to find a place where I had left part of the history undocumented. And that was what I found. I was like, okay. And the reason I wanted to use the Sagittarius crew specifically is because I was already using the Enterprise by necessity. It's a TOS story. I did not also want to use the Endeavor. The Endeavor is another Constitution class starship just like the Enterprise. Well, why would you have two of those involved in one crisis? It's just there's not enough difference between them in terms of their capabilities, sort of the tempo of life, the style of command you'd have on both ships. I was looking for contrast, so I felt like the best contrast was going to come from finding a story that could involve the Sagittarius. So I found this block of about six months in book five, where the Sagittarius's whereabouts and actions are not documented at all. I was like, okay, I can drop a whole new story in here, something that happens over the course of, say, a few days, a week, maybe even each, you know, a couple of weeks of time, and not worry that I'm stepping on anything else. I'm not going to mess up Vanguard continuity. I'm not going to mess up original series continuity. It'll all just piece together, and it'll just become one more piece of Vanguard. And I checked it very carefully. I checked it 10 ways to Sunday. I checked the online continuity on memory beta. I checked memory alpha. I pulled the chronology off the bookshelf behind me. I pulled the books. I reviewed the text. I went over it not only by myself. I went over it with Dayton Ward, who, in addition to working for Star Trek licensing now uh, through CBS, uh, was also you know one of the creative partners with me on Vanguard. He and Kevin Delmore worked as a writing duo on one side and I worked solo on the other and we would sort of volley, you know, ping pong the series back and forth between us. Uh, So I checked with Dayton and I also asked Dayton and Kevin before I started working on this, if they were okay with it, because, you know, even though I co-created it with Marco, I know that Dayton and Kevin put a lot into it. They put in blood, sweat, tears, time, just like I did. And in the end, we were partners. We were a team and I didn't want to reopen this if I thought it was going to piss them off. So I made sure they were on board with it before I did anything. So during the story development process, planning it out, finding it, 
and sort of you know figuring it all out, I sent it to them and said, what do you guys think? A, do you think it works? B, are you okay with it? And so I had other eyes looking at it, and that was how we found this period of time in the middle of book five, which when I compared it to the original series continuity just happened to be about a week after the Doomsday Machine and about a month after a muck time, which I realized are two major emotional events, one for Kirk and one for Spock. I'm like, these are the things where it's going to be on their mind, even if they're not talking about it. Spock is probably going to be shook up by the events of a muck time for a little while. You know, he got betrayed by T'Prang. He thought he killed his captain. He, you know, has to be questioning his logic right now. Meanwhile, Kirk has just watched an old friend, an old colleague die uh, and realizes, you know, I completed the mission he should have completed. I, you know, flew his ship into the into the you know the death burrito when it should have been him he should have had the honor of killing that thing that murdered his crew Mm -hmm. and it's a shame i had to do it for him because he broke and threw his life away and even though it's not technically kirk's job to contact decker's family because he's not decker's commanding officer it's not his job but he was there he was a participant he was a witness he was a family friend and so he feels a moral obligation to say something to the widow, to the son, uh, who will eventually grow up to be Will Decker of the motion picture. Yep. He feels an obligation. He's like, I was there when the man died. I should say something. But I don't want to lie, but I damn well can't tell him the truth. Mm-hmm. But what am I going to tell him? You, he did everything right. He got screwed. He lost his mind and he flew a shuttle in there because he wanted to die. It's like, well, that's not a great story. And Bones has to tell him, no, you, you tell him he died showing us how to win. And then you just sort of smooth over that. Yep. He's like, well, it's a lie. And McCoy has to point out, yes, but sometimes a lie, a beautiful lie is what we need. Mm-hmm. And it helps, uh, it helps people process and give finality as well to, to find, all of that. Find closure. Yeah. To believe that the death was not meaningless, that it was still heroic, still meaningful in a way. Yeah. And I, and I liked how it pushed uh, Kirk, uh, and I was wondering what, how you thought about this, um, throughout the story about him questioning his own decisions as a captain, because usually in, in the series, he's, for the most part, he's fairly self-assured of, him, of his decisions right. and choices. He questions other things, but being a captain is not one of them. And here it was really interesting to see him being like, did I make the right choice? Having seen Decker, as you said, make all the right choices and still uh, lose. And that, and it reminded me of the famous Picard quote. It's like, sometimes we make all the right choices and still lose. Um, and that's not, that's, right. that's not, that's life. And so I, I, yeah. I like that questioning. I'm curious how you thought of that arc for him. Well, I mean, once I started to really get into it uh, and I found the timing, like, you know, where it was in the continuity, I was discussing it with my uh, editor, Margaret Clark. And I said, how do you think I should approach this? You know, what do you think uh, would be the most, you know, fruitful avenues of exploration? Because uh, I told her what I was thinking about with Spock. And she says, that's good. She says, what are you thinking about with Kirk? I'm like, well, what do you think? I mean, this really more happened to Decker than to him, didn't it? And she said, well, you know, she pointed out to me that this could be the kind of thing where he sees in Decker himself 10 years down the road. And it's got to be that moment that, you know, even if he won't say it aloud, he won't question himself or second guess himself out loud to his men. He still has to project certainty to the crew because they need that from the captain. But what we know because we're inside Kirk's head is he is freaked out. He's a little bit edgy. He's 
his temper is a little bit close to the surface right now uh and apparently has been for a while and it's because he's grappling with notions of fallibility and he's wondering you know did i just send spock by himself to lead that mission because i watched what happened to decker and now i'm afraid to leave my ship or did i do it because it was the right thing to do because it made sense for spock to command the mission and it's like, so he's second guessing himself. He shouldn't be. He made the right call, but he's shaken. Mm-hmm. And so for like this brief period in his life of a few weeks where he's emotionally processing what has happened in the doomsday machine, he's processing the death of Decker, who is a friend and in some ways a, a role model for him. He's just going to be going through this process of you know, trying to figure out, am I compensating? Am I overcompensating? Uh, you know, am I second guessing myself? Should I be second guessing myself? But he can't do it out loud. And so it's torturing him. And it's coming out in inappropriate moments where he's snapping at Scotty or he's being a little bit short over here. And it takes bones, you know, getting a tip from Scotty. Scotty's saying, you know, Captain is going to need a, a, a bit of wee, a, a wee bit of attention. <laughs> Wait a bit uh, of attention, laddie. <laughs> wait a bit of attention. It's like there's a time, you know, Scotty knows I can fix things up to a certain degree. This is not my specialty. I can fix my uh, I can fix my cap uh, I can fix my captain's starship. I can't fix my captain. <laughs> you got it. That's the doctor's job. Hey mm-hmm. laddie. Unless you go by there. <laughs> so he calls the doctor, and of course, you know, when you know it, Kirky was even like, you know. You know, did somebody push up to this? And McCoy's like, no, no, I just thought I stopped by. It's because McCoy would never say, oh, well, you know, the chief engineer thinks you're losing your job. So. <laughs> the doctor has way too much discretion for that. You know, Bones was the classic Southern doctor. He's always like, it's just a social call. I thought I'd see how you're doing. Here, let me pour you a few fingers <laughs> you know, of, of you know, brown magic here. Here you go. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, essentially, yeah, the, once we found the time frame for the story, the time frame dictated what the emotional stories were going to be. Because I'm looking at this, I'm saying at that point in their lives, what is most on the minds of Kirk and Spock? Kirk is thinking about the death of Decker and how you can do everything right as a commanding officer and still lose. And now he's second guessing himself at a time when he can't afford to be. And Spock is dealing with the fact that he, for a moment, just a moment, lost that emotional control that discipline of logic he's fought for his whole life and it nearly cost him everything his career his captain uh you know he got betrayed by depraying it's like he's he's not admitting it but he's stinging this is stinging him inside mm-hmm. he's lost a lot in a very short period of time and he can't talk about it mm-hmm. there's nobody who will really understand there's nobody who's keyed into what he's going through So he's processing that and it's costing him. He's thinking, is my logic flawed? I'm trying to be, I've spent all this time trying to be the guy my father wants me to be. Should I spend more time trying to be the man my mother wanted me to be? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what had that on my mind as a writer is that, you know, I was writing this at the beginning of uh, 2022. uh, And, you know, my mom had passed away in 2020. So, you know, when I was writing Coda, it was very heavily in my mind. And now as I'm sort of getting to the other side of grief and having processed it, you know, looking at Spock going through this, I'm thinking, yeah, see, you know, his parents are still alive and he's still, you know, fighting through these competing, you know, efforts. Am I my mother's son or am I my father's son? Is there some way I can be both or do I have to be neither? 
It's like he's trying to find his identity. In some ways, at this point in his life, Spock is still actually a young man by Vulcan standards. Mm-hmm. And he's still trying to figure out who, who am I really? You know, mm-hmm. am I logical or am I emotional? Am I, am I human? Am I Vulcan? Is there some way I can reconcile the two halves of who I am without betraying one or the other? Mm-hmm. And he's, so he's grappling with that and it's impairing his logic. And at a moment where he's, you know, finally, you know, had this moment of uh, being confronted with logic and, and having it fail him. So he tries to embrace his mother's way of thinking, compassion, uh, the human side of his nature. He embraces it at exactly the wrong moment when logic would have dictated, no, you do shoot her, mm-hmm. shoot it. Kill it! It's like, no, too late. And now yeah. half the landing party's dead. Yeah. Yeah. Was, and the way so. you described their death was was uh to get to that was was pretty gruesome. I was like, my my little Eldritch horror loving soul was like, oh yes, please. <laughs> All the gruesome deaths, but it was it was pretty, pretty brutal. Oh yeah, I mean that's they're basically fighting a Lovecraftian horror. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I always loved about Vanguard. It was essentially it's Lovecraft, you know, meets original series, meets Tom Clancy. That was the that was the the thing that I mentioned in my review that I was very cagey about. I'm like, yes, this feels very and, and something I didn't actually say uh too. It also kind of reminded me of um even though I know it's coming out of Vanguard, reminded me of animated series too, with like characters on the planet. And then you have these like weird, like alien bird things just yeah. going around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just kind of, it kind of made me think of that. And it like, it felt, it felt like a natural evolution of Vanguard. Um, yeah. But also a, a very, uh, very original series with like, Oh, these people on this planet are worshiping this God that has like been so like someone from the Klingon. It's Empire. a lot like the apple. Yes, yeah. exactly. That was the one I was thinking. You made the apple good. <laughs> Except bigger and more brutal. Yes. Um, yes. And, you know, well, I realized, you know, that again, I think you had also mentioned that you'd had uh, some issues with the uh, the scale of the action mm-hmm. sequences. Yes. I think that it's a realistic depiction if you're thinking about the difference in firepower, the equivalency in firepower, where you've got essentially high power Klingon siege weapons on one side, mm-hmm. which are capable of dealing out mass death. And they're made to overcome a technologically equivalent foe mm-hmm. and you're using them against a very primitive foe. I mean, when you've got, you know, a, a, a pulse disruptor, that's going to basically rip through every bit of matter for about a hundred yards. Yeah. You're going to kill a lot of things really fast. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially the vision I'm seeing there, do you ever see the original movie predator back yes. in the 80s? Oh, yes. 80s? Yes, of course. It's like the scene when the guy with the mini gun loses his shit. And he starts mowing down the jungle. And you realize everything within about 100 yards of this guy is dead. He's killed everything. If there was any poor animal anywhere in there, he, murdered he vaporized trees. the poor. He, he, now, he mows down all the trees. But if any animal got caught in that, it was vaporized. Mm-hmm. It's like that, except times five. This is high-powered 23rd century Klingon siege disruptor weaponry. They're wiping out forests. They're destroying things. They're just basically blazing a path. Any organic matter that gets in the way of that barrage is just gone. It's vaporized. It's cooked into free atoms. It's it's just you know just free radicals. It's like yeah, five guys with that kind of weaponry mm-hmm. can take out 
500 primitives with spears and rocks. And you kind of have to have that because it only takes one of those primitives with a spear and a rock to put the spear in your head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You got to be able to kill 500 in a shot because if you can't, you're dead. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it takes one rock, one rock and you're done. (laughs) Yeah. I I like that line where, where you said, you know, they have to be lucky a thousand times and these guys only have to be lucky once. Once. Yeah, exactly. This is fair. Yeah. Uh, I, I, speaking of which uh, the gallows humor, of course, when they're talking about the weaponry and stuff, and he's like, I no longer think we're, um, mismatched here with our weapons and the sticks and rocks. And <laughs> Chuck, I was like, no, I'm, I'm certain we are mismatched. I'm putting my money on the sticks and rocks now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. There's some great it's stuff. It's like they're pinned down. At that one point, I think they were pinned down by the riverside and Lucci gets fed up. He tries to get up and he gets a spear through mm. his foot. Yeah. That was it's like, wham. Yeah. It's like, and I think I described it as, you know, it was a single syllable uh, profanity, but he managed to stretch it out. For, <laughs> it's like, he could just get like, fuck. <laughs> That's exactly kind of the what I wide, wide shot and you see birds fly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think my, my single favorite line though, had to be when they're talking about the casualties they're going to take and it's 50 to 75% casualties. And they're like, right. that is that to our too. side or, or the other side? Both. Is that our side? Is that our guys or your guys? Oh, don't worry. We'll spread it out. We'll both take some. Yeah. And Chekhov, <laughs> Chekhov's like, ah, that, that, that's horrible. And the, the Klingon <laughs> officer is like, don't worry. We'll let some of your, your people die too. We won't hog all the glory. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. We won't all get all. I love very, that. very Klingon. <laughs> uh, speaking, speaking on that, actually, that was one of my favorite parts of uh, of the book uh, was the Klingon characters, which uh, which I really, really uh, like seeing. Um, not only just the ones in the away team, but Kang as well, and both kind of acting as like um, um, kind of juxtapositions to our Starfleet crew. Uh, mm-hmm. And I thought I was curious about how you sort of were thinking about setting it up because I thought that was that was honestly one of my favorite parts of the book, just really getting an insight into uh, TOS era Klingons uh, at the time because we've gotten some of that with like um, I remember the IKS Gorkin books where those are TNG yeah. era things as well. Right. Well, we saw a lot of that in the original uh, Vanguard series mm-hmm. with the IKS Zinza mm-hmm. and its commanding officer and you know, its sort of junior officers. They had their ongoing storyline. They actually made it through something like three or four of the Vanguard books before I think they got taken out either in what judgments come or maybe in the last book. I'm not sure. They, they eventually met a grisly fate as most characters in that series did. But the idea was that they, they were likable. They were relatable. We understood them. They had understandable concerns and they had a certain camaraderie. The uh, sort of camaraderie I think of when I'm writing Klingon characters, uh, I, I base it on the crew of Das Boat, you know, the, the Wolfgang Peterson film from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you think, you know, it's a story about a German U-boat crew. It's you know, like, how am I supposed to relate to a German U-boat crew in World War II? Well, once you see the movie, you realize they're just a bunch of ordinary guys. These are not ideologues. These aren't like the party members. These are the country kids who got drafted and put in tin cans and submerged, to, you know, 300 meters and they're all like, what the hell are we doing here? Mm-hmm. Like they're just a bunch of kids uh, and machinists. You know, there's some mechanics and some engineers and they're all just drafted, basically. So I was using that as my emotional template. And then as you noticed, obviously, there's the juxtaposition of them with the landing party. Like the strike team and the landing party 
are going through a lot of the same motions, but having slightly different outcomes. Like the landing party is very worried about, you know, first contact, let's not disturb the ecosystem, this and that. And the Klingons are like, yeah, let's shoot that thing. It might be tasty. (laughs) Oh, that is tasty. Hey, the sap from this thing is actually kind of fun. You can make something out of it. So they're, they're not as concerned, you know, about the delicacy of the ecosystem. So they get to have a little more fun. But like, for instance, with Kang and Kirk, they're almost two sides of the same coin. These are two guys, both uh, very shrewd, very capable starship commanders who have both just been hamstrung by their high command. They've both been told, don't start a war. And if you do, make sure you find a way to blame it on the other guy. Do not leave us holding the bag on a war. You are, th- th- that's important. No war. So you've got Kang, who's got his bloodthirsty crew. They all want to dive into action, as you know, heroes will. And he's got to say, no, no, that is not our job. That is not the mission. The mission is put the strike team on the planet, achieve the objective on the planet, recover the strike team. Right now, we control orbit. We are in the advantage position. Enterprise is not. If we leave this position because we think Enterprise might be hiding over there, Maybe we find Enterprise, maybe we don't, but if we're wrong and we're out of position and our crew comes back and we blow it, now we're the idiots. No, Mm -hmm. I have the advantage position and I'm going to keep it. And if Kirk wants it, he can come get it. And that's the tactically smart thing to do. No, I have the advantage position. If Kirk wants it, let him challenge me for it. That's smart. And then you've got Kirk who would love to challenge him for it, except he's been told, don't start a war. Don't have an unnecessary confrontation. Don't give them a reason to shoot at you. Don't give them a reason to shoot at your shuttle. So he's trying to figure out, how the hell am I going to get my shuttle back without them blowing it out of the sky? Without them just towing it in with a tractor beam? How do I get my shuttle back without a shooting war? It's like, you know, it seems like an intractable problem. It seems like a catch-22. So they're both sort of dealing with this impossible problem. They're both hamstrung from above. They're both dealing with the fact that their most reliable people, the people they trust most in the world, are now on the planet. They're separated from them. Kirk is separated from Spock. Mm-hmm. Kang is separated from Mara. So they've got to trust that their other half, you know, their, their, their number one or whoever, is going to do the right thing down there and come back intact. So I, I guess it was one of those things where I did a lot of research into the Kang-Kirk relationship. And I, I, there are some little Easter eggs dropped into the text, like little descriptions of some of their past interactions are actually descriptions of stories that have either been told in past Star Trek novels, Mm -hmm. Star Trek comic books, Mm -hmm. which also detailed some of the Kang uh, and Kirk interactions. So I sort of dropped those in just as a fun bit for anybody who's like a long time, lifelong reader Mm -hmm. of Trek comics, Trek novels. Uh, but even if you haven't read those stories, there's enough of it there that you're like, okay, so these guys have met before, they've tangled before, and there's enough going on that they've learned to respect each other. There's a, a sense of mutual antagonism, but also mutual respect, uh, which comes out like, for instance, when Kang says, you know, you, he tells one of his subordinates, you discount him because he's human, but he's not, you know, he's no easy prey. He's a warrior. There's a reason Kirk is an honorable Klingon name. Mm-hmm. So he's warning him. He's like, this guy is one of us. Don't underestimate him. I just, I really sort of enjoyed that aspect of the Klingons. And then the other fun thing I had to do 
was taking into account if I'm going to use Kang and I'm going to use Mara, I have to remember the episode The Day of the Dove mm-hmm. from season three. So I had to rewatch that. And one of the fun bits that's established in Day of the Dove, which allows me to get away with what I did in harm's way, is that the Beta 12 entity that messes with their heads in Day of the Dove, it's able to do things like plant false memories into people like Mm -hmm. Chekhov. Mm -hmm. It plants false memories into some of the other crew members, into some of the Klingons. It also suppresses some memories. And at one point, Spock is able to say, you know, at this point, we can't be sure what we know or don't know as long as that thing is here. You know, we don't actually know who our friends are. We don't know what our past is. It's telling us, you know, that we have these events in our past, but we can't trust our memories anymore. So if you've got the Beta 12 entity, is that capable of messing with memory, suppressing real memory, planting fake memory, et cetera. That's the excuse for why in Day of the Dove, Kang, although he knows that he has had previous encounters with Kirk, Mara does not remember, for instance, being rescued by Babbitts and Sulu. Mm-hmm. Sulu doesn't remember Babbitts. Chekhov doesn't, uh, not, not Babbitts, uh, Mara. Sulu and Chekhov don't remember Mara or vice versa. It's because Beta 12A, a Beta 12 creature is suppressing the memories he doesn't want these people to remember that they had a friendly encounter he doesn't want kang to remember you know these people risk their ass to save your wife they don't want mara it doesn't want mara to remember you owe your life to these people it's like no i need you to fight so that's my excuse for how (laughs) i get away with tie and writers always finding the 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 ways around there you go yeah we find the way i i scan every line of dialogue and i go right there <laughs> that's clever there's my out there's my out i love it <laughs> so that's how i get away with it that's how i have not that's how i am in compliance with canon mm-hmm. no that's perfect and i mean yeah that works absolutely the klingons in this one and mara in particular just display so much depth which like you said we've seen before with the klingons in vanguard and stuff um, one thing that I loved is at multiple points throughout the story, you slowly find out that the Klingons know way more than we think they do. And they're also mm-hmm. on a completely different mission than we think they are. <sighs> like there's, that's the fun. That was, that was the fun part. I was, when I was preparing the story, uh, I knew that the Klingons throughout Vanguard, they, you know, they had their own initiative. They were onto it just like we were. They were digging up their own evidence. They have their own sphere of control. They had access to the Klingon neutral zone. It's established very clearly in the dialogue. They've sent survey teams to this planet before. They know the Chwai. They've dealt with the Chwai before. They know who they are. We didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were ahead of us on some regards. Uh, and we saw this in, in Vanguard, too. There were a couple of cases where the Klingons had access to Shaddai technology uh, or, you know, ancient Shaddai sites that they found before we did. And they were researching it just like we were. It was important to them, just like it was important to us. So, yeah, there are times when they know what we know. Sometimes they know a little more than we know. But when I was structuring the story and I was thinking, okay, what's going to be the fun reversal? Like, you know, I lead you to you know expect one thing. I set up one set of expectations in the first half of the book and you hit that midpoint, and that's the midpoint has to be the point in the story where the reader is thinking, the story is about this. And then you go, no, actually, it's about this. 
And that moment happens when they're in the dungeon. They go, well, I, I think there's a flaw in your theory. Uh, I believe these are the remains of Dr. Verdo right over here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that uh, checks out. That's Verdo. Well, if that's Verdo right there, who's that up there? I love that. That's a very good question. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like, yep. Like now we realize, okay, this mission has taken a left turn. Mm-hmm. That was a great. It was a great twist. Yeah, and it plays with the the reader's assumptions and and presumptions. Like I I love that that you know the Klingons after we find out what the Enterprise is being sent to do, the Klingons get a mission: find a scientist. And it's like you know they think, oh, they're being sent after the same guys. Yeah, so, no, not, yeah, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> it was just you know, it's it's fun little misdirects. It's like you you go back and you flip back and you go, yeah, technically the the writer didn't lie to me, but he's still. <laughs> <laughs> right. They say we're looking for a lab rat. I never say what lab rat. Yeah, exactly. Which is that we're looking for a different lab rat. And then of course the other you know subverted expectation is. We we deliberately set up the reader to think whoever this Joran Verdo was, he was clearly messing with forces beyond his control. And you, mm-hmm. you find out, no, he was there. He was trying to talk Chunvig out of doing exactly mm-hmm. that. He was there going, you don't understand what you're messing with. Don't do this. You know, it's like, you know, you, this is a mistake. And she doesn't listen. Mm-hmm. And you find out, no, Verdo was actually a good guy and he died for it. Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah, congratulations. You know, sometimes the good guys don't win. Yeah. It feels very fitting with uh, what you were trying to do with Vanguard as well. It definitely fits the theme of Vanguard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember telling somebody once the if a single piece of music ever summed up all of what Vanguard is about, it's the song Bravado by Rush. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a line, I think, you know, a line in the of lyrics, which I believe goes, you know, if everything is, you know, if everything is lost, we will pay the price, but we will not count the cost. Uh, and the basic premise is that you know you sacrifice everything for the higher objective and it may look like you've lost but you know essentially you know if love remains is you know sort of the refrain of the song it's about unsung heroes it's about people who are willing to make great sacrifices to achieve victories that are then unsung and unknown in many respects that's what vanguard is about the larger theme of course that runs through the whole series of vanguard is atonement and redemption mm-hmm. yeah. and that's part of what we find here is that you know the uh reputation of dr joran verdo is slandered at the beginning and in the end uh he is redeemed he is also dead but his memory is redeemed by the fact that it turns out he was not a villain and the klingons are redeemed because it turns out you know, when the chips are down, they understand the difference between, you know, victory and letting a monster run amok. Mm-hmm. They're willing to hold the line. They're like, you know, hey, you know, if you're next to us and we're firing at the same enemy, for right now, we're on the same side. We're allies. And yeah. we'll go down to the wire and we'll die for you. Yeah. As long as we are in combat together as allies, we will lay it down on the line. We don't care who we were to each other yesterday, today, here, now. That's the enemy we're allies we fight together we die together because mm. that's who they are i really loved that because that that's that's when um klingons are are best to me when they have that sort of sense of honor that overrides the the like them 
the, like, the dogma. Villains. Exactly. Which is sometimes where I get um, the, my least favorite version of Klingons. Like, and as someone who loves the show, I think the Star Trek Enterprise Klingons were probably the ones that I think were, were weakest in that aspect because they felt a little bit too cartoonish in their single-minded sort of dogma against people without actually being nuanced in that way. Mm-hmm. Although I do understand part of what they were going for is that they were trying to, at the time, posit that Klingon society and culture went through a period of depredation, yes. uh, of, mm-hmm. of collapse, that they were in a corrupt period and that it was essentially, you know, only in the TOS era did they start reclaiming some of that heritage after the war with the Federation. And as we move through, you know, the cold war era where they're holding on to old ideals, which are eventually destroyed when, with the loss of Praxis and the destruction, you know, the widespread destruction on the home world, the peace accord is signed so that by the time we get to the 24th century, the old ideals have started to come back. They're still being challenged. There's still your old hardliners like Duras the Duras family who are never going to accept it. Um, They're always going to have the autocratic tendency, the fascist tendency, but the notion of Martok, you know, the whole concept behind the Martok storyline is he was supposed to be like a King Arthur like figure. The idea is his, you know, replacing the corrupt Gowron who replaced the corrupt, uh, whatever that, you know, fat bastard was before him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kempek. Gowron wasn't corrupt, but he was overly ambitious and ideal and and too much of an ideal. He was, he was a politician. He was a very good politician. He was a politician, but he was vicious. Martok is a true man of honor. Mm -hmm. He was a warrior. He was an honorable soldier. He had no desire for power, but when Worf thrust it upon him, he realized he had a duty. Yeah. And in that respect, he's very much like an Arthurian figure. So you've got this long arc for the Klingons which I think is just beautiful where they go from, you know, a corrupt, you know, you know, sort of almost cartoon villain society in the enterprise era. And over the course of two centuries, they slowly have to reclaim their honor. They have to suffer. They have to hit rock bottom, start clawing their way back, still deal with the poisonous element, you know, the most poisoned elements of their culture until eventually an Arthurian like figure rises up to say, this is the way back to honor. This is the way back to glory not through conquest, but through honorable living, through, you know, keeping our word, through being who we say we are, through honoring our treaties. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about the blood you shed. It's you know, it's not about the blood you shed in victory. It's about the blood you shed in defense of what you stand for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, that is best shown in the episode Judgment, which has J.G. Hertzler sort of playing an echo of that, uh, of the Martok yes. character in the, in the lawyer. Um, it's one of those, it's one of those things like, had we ever gotten an Enterprise season five, I think they could have done for the Klingons what they did for the Vulcans in season four and, and really Maybe. owned that arc, I think. Maybe. Yeah. Speaking of of combat and conflict, there was one scene in this that I want to pop back to from early on in the novel, and that is the the clash of the admirals, Nogura and Fitzpatrick. <laughs> that was wonderful. I was going to bring that up too. Which oh, I, I just have to ask, like... What did you draw upon to write this? Is this like a wish fulfillment conversation you want to have with someone? Because it it <laughs> felt so real. It's funny you should ask that because at the time I wrote it, uh, the editors were worried that, you know, they're like, are they going to think that you're talking to us? <laughs> and I'm like, no, no. And they go, well, maybe you want to massage this a little bit. I'm like, all right. So I, I tweaked it a little bit. The whole idea is that Nagura, uh, he comes in, he replaces Reyes. Reyes was very laconic. He didn't say a lot. 
but what he said, he meant, you know, he would speak very clearly, very succinctly. He'd get to the point and be done. And occasionally there'd be like little witticisms and aphorisms dropped in and whatever. I was picturing him when I was writing him as uh, kind of like Tommy Lee Jones. I'm not sure who would play that character today, but it would be somebody laconic, somebody who could just kind of be easygoing. And then he's replaced by Nagura. And Nagura is a consummate politician coming up through the, the naval admiralty, you know, coming up through the admiralty ranks. And he's got this position that he knows is going to translate into long-term power if he accomplishes the greater objective. It doesn't matter what outwardly seems to become of the vanguard mission, as long as the underlying elements of the mission are achieved. So he's got to exercise every bit of power he's given in order to pull this off, because he knows he's basically, once he's put in charge of it, he's realized this is one of those make-or-break assignments. It will either make you or it will break you. It will lead you on to power and glory or it will completely destroy your entire life. And it all depends on what you do with it and whether you succeed. So he is all in. He realizes he's got to be all in. So he's got this sort of remit of authority from Starfleet Command because he's been put in charge of Operation Vanguard. He's got the Starbase. He's got sector level command. Anything that relates to the Taurus Reach, that whole sector, anything that relates to any starship under his command, anything related to Starbase 47, anything that touches upon the Shaddai Metagino, anything that comes within that comes under his sphere of control. And basically the remit from Starfleet Command is once it's under your remit, once it's under Operation Vanguard, you have absolute plenary authority. Do whatever you have to do. If it's in your sphere of operations, you are the last you know, court of appeal. Do what you got to do. Get it done. So he has a lot of power. And the point of having power, if you don't exercise it, if other people don't recognize it, then you might as well not have it. So the moment he's got this bureaucrat threatening to cop everything he's doing by sending in a ship into what they should realize, you know, it's like you're sending him into this part of the Klingon neutral zone, this star system. If you're a fleet operations executive you know at the admiralty level you should be able to tell that the system you're sending somebody into is technically part of taurus reach that is under authority of operation vanguard that should be pretty clear you should be able to look at that and see that's what that is and yet fitzgerald sends the enterprise in because enterprise is under his command but he shouldn't be sending enterprise he has sent enterprise into an area that is under somebody else's exclusive plenary control. Now you've got a political problem because as they point out, if you've got one Starfleet ship in this place where it's not supposed to be, they can spin any ply they want and it'll be good enough for the diplomats to work with at the table. You can say, Oh, we, uh, we had a navigational malfunction. Oh, we had a, uh, you know, a malfunction in the warp and we suddenly slipped through subspace and we popped out here. You can come up with you know, all sorts of technobabble lies. Nobody cares how outrageous they are. You just got to give them something to hang a hat on when the diplomats sit down to hash it out. But two ships, two Starfleet ships are in the system. There's no explaining that. Mm-hmm. No, you get caught with two Starfleet ships in the system. There is no talking your way out of that. And if the other side gets a hold of it, 
Now you're going to get raked over the coals. It's going to be a diplomatic incident. God knows what you're going to lose in diplomatic concessions by the time you talk your way out of this. So Nagura is pissed because you should have read the map and you've just cost us big time if we get caught. And so he basically reads this guy the riot act and it doesn't matter that the guy he's chewing out technically outranks him. This is one of those funny little things about the military. You can chew out someone who outranks you if you've got a better billet. For instance, you could be a commander in charge of, you know, a warship and you might be dealing with a you know, a higher ranked officer, you know, they're a ground officer, you know, serve, you know, a shore level officer, and they've done something dumb and they've put your ship at risk. You're going to get a lot more leeway as a ship commander, as a, as a commanding officer on a ship than the captain will as a shore officer. And you can chew his ass out if he's done something that puts you and your crew at risk. When Fitzgerald creates the potential for a massive interstellar incident by sending Enterprise into somebody else's operational sphere of command without notifying them, never mind asking permission. He didn't even tell them he was doing it. He didn't, nobody found out until the two ships went, huh? <laughs> of course Nagur is pissed. And he's always had that potential. It was, it was, it was wonderful to read. I, I adored it for all of those reasons. It was, it was a very, he's like, Oh, I wish I could chew out, as, as uh, Dan was saying, I wish I could chew out someone in my life this this way. <laughs> um, this thoroughly. I mean, I, I can probably think of a few people in you know, my life from my pre-writing life who maybe I wish I could have ripped apart that well, but mm-hmm. yeah, nobody in my current life deserves. That sounds good. That sounds, that sounds healthy. That sounds very healthy. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly none of the fine people I work with at, at SNS, none of the people at Star Trek deserve that. There may be a couple of chuckleheads from my day jobs back in the olden <laughs> days, like 20 years ago, who I would have loved to have done that to. Although I think I did decide like when I was writing the scene, like when I was actually first committing it to paper and just burning through it and having the time of my life, I was thinking to myself, sooner or later, after the book is published, I'm going to be invited to do readings yes. from the book, probably <laughs> at a convention. When that happens, I'm reading this. Oh, of oh course yeah. you have to. That's this the best. Is my easily sample. the best scene. Yeah. This is what I'm reading. I haven't heard it yet, but I realized. I have a, I have to use my download credit to get one of the audible. Robert Petkoff does a great job with. I want to hear what oh, Petkoff yeah. did with that scene because that's what I listened to the audiobook and he does he does a great job with it. Oh, I gotta hear what he did with that scene. I bet he had the time. In his oh, life. he he clearly did. He he definitely <laughs> goes off and he he just enjoys playing playing both parts. Like he plays uh, the one admiral is just like oh, I'm sorry I don't know. Yeah, it was it was great. He did it. He did a wonderful job. I, I really do. Petkoff. Petkoff is a is a great narrator. He narrates. Oh, he's wonderful. Yeah. Particularly he his Vulcans. great voices. He's got a great his, sense of tone. Yeah, his Vulcans are are pitch. Every Vulcan character he does in every uh, Star Trek novel is perfect. I've always done old school. I'm really gonna have to listen to one of the audiobooks sometime, and and this would be a good one for sure. You're gonna have to listen to uh, Andrew Robinson's doing the Stitch in Time next year. That's gonna be a must. That's gonna be Absolutely. Great. Mm-hmm. I yeah. I'm excited for that. Yeah. Yeah, I really wish that they could figure out the contractual problems that prevent them from doing audiobooks, dramatic audio adaptations, mm. uh, and stuff like that for a lot of the older titles, like stuff from like pre twenty twelve. That's like I mentioned in my review of your book. That's what I more than anything I would I would kill for Star Trek Vanguard audio because oh, yeah. my my problem is because of, because of my work doing um, writing and things like that. I don't have a lot of time to do reading 
uh, other than nonfiction stuff. I do a lot of nonfiction research and that's where a lot of my reading time is. So a lot of my time when I do get to relax and read uh, fiction, it's uh, it's audiobooks, which is great for your books, which are coming out. But uh, but older stuff, I was like, oh, I, would, I would kill to be able to relive some. Yeah, I mean, it, and I really think it would be great if they could do it for something like, say, the Destiny trilogy. Which, mm-hmm. It sells a lot of units even today in ebook, but I feel like you know, we're missing out because I know a lot of folks would love to pick it up as just like a straight up digital audiobook, even not even like, you know, dramatic audio cast reading, whatever, just a good unabridged digital audiobook. Yeah. But the problem was that at the time the contracts for that were negotiated, uh, Simon and Schuster was not in that line of work. And they, I guess they didn't really see a market for it. You know, cause when they signed that contract, that was like, Oh, six, when we negotiated that deal, they weren't really, you know, expecting that technology to take off. And so there's no provision in the original contract mm. for, you know, uh, you know, acquiring those rights, what sort of royalty rights I would be paid, et cetera. And you would think, well, you know, can't it just be renegotiated? Can't they add a writer? Well, maybe they could, maybe they can't. I'm not sure what the holdup is, but for whatever reason, uh, I feel like they just, for some reason, they would rather just let the revenue go than mm. figure out the legal hassle. You tell them, I will I will use my entire platform on YouTube to be like, <laughs> bring me the audiobooks. If, if, I can, if I can wield my platform in one selfish way, it will be to get Star Trek audiobooks for the old books. So you tell them, I will, I will make them sell, even if I have to, I have to buy a hundred of them myself. <laughs> my, my hope uh, <laughs> is that, you know, as they're looking at new opportunities and starting to rethink their approach to the media landscape mm-hmm. as they look forward i'm hoping that they will find a way somehow i mean i'm not privy to their internal operations so i don't know how they would go about this or if they even intend to but i would hope they would find a way to just work out the legal problem and just do even if it's just to do digital audiobooks but for yeah. instance i would love to see them do like, you know, the full cast dramatic audio uh, adaptation of something like Destiny. Mm-hmm. You know, like get actors involved, like get the voice actors from TNG while they still can. That's been my pitch for forever is uh, is I, I've, I've said my dream job has always been producer of audio dramas, like get a big finish style um, audio dramas for, for Star Trek, which they're kind of hinting towards they did uh the star trek picard one with uh jerry ryan and uh michelle right. heard mm-hmm. and they're doing another one for uh study off of five yeah, yeah the con one with um uh why am i blanking on his name the director of, of two and, and nick, myers. Yeah. nick myers yeah he's been working on that that's been a pet project to his for a very long time mm-hmm. uh he's been uh pursuing that i think they originally were pursuing it as like a tv miniseries um and now it's sort of going in a different direction uh but he continues to be fully committed to it. He's got uh, he's got a lot of passion for that project. No, yeah, I'm curious to see what he's gonna what he's gonna have for. But yeah, hopefully they can. I agree with you. I think that the to do new ones or in like you know because uh either redo some of the old ones as audiobooks, just straight audiobooks, or doing some dramatic readings, or do some new ones. Bring in some of the actors that are maybe aged out of the part in terms of like maybe being in the role at the time, but do it like a voyager story with uh with kate, kate mulgrew or robert ricardo or mm-hmm. someone bring them in it'd be great yeah i mean i think there's a lot of great opportunities there i mean mm-hmm. as we're seeing with you know the kind of work that uh robert beltran and mm-hmm. kate mulgrew are getting to do on star trek prodigy because of the animated medium you know, as voice actors there's still uh, a lot of opportunities left for them to do great work uh, either in animation or in just straight up 
I think, audio drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that as that market begins to, you know, again, reassert itself, you know, we're getting back almost to the classic days of radio drama Yeah, back when, you know, people used to love that. I think it's making a comeback. And I think as it does, that would be a great way to keep these, you know, veteran actors who know these characters better than anybody, keep them in the mix and, you know, take advantage of their talent and their, uh, their intimate knowledge of the characters. I still have a, uh, I still have fond, fond memories of, uh, they did have, um, they had a Star Trek Borg one, which was the the basically the CD-ROM game, but they had a, an actor come in to like read the parts that your character was playing. Um, and that was an audio drama as a kid. I listened to that over and over and over mm. again because it was a lot of fun. It's like I wanted more of yeah. those. So fingers crossed. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, with regards to Harm's Way, I, I think uh, it's pretty clear from the way I've spoken about it. I highly recommend the novel. I think everybody should read it. If you've listened to this podcast without reading this novel, I question your life choices, but <laughs> go read it. Maybe we were just so damn entertaining they couldn't stop. That could very well be. I yeah. mean, you know, let's not sell ourselves. We're short. a damn delight. I mean, <laughs> are we? I think so. I think so too. Absolutely. Well, is there anything that we haven't mentioned uh, with regards to the novel that uh, you'd like to tell our listeners? I think probably the the character arc that was most fun to write, and for me, represents in a lot of ways the heart of the book. Even though she's only a supporting character, uh, is Doctor Battles. Yeah. She's the chief medical officer on the Sagittarius. She's a germaphobe, and in a lot of ways, you know, we start out treating her as an object of, you know, of derision. She's there to almost be made fun of because of her, her germophobia. Uh, you know, we have the whole moment where she's being shaken on the shuttle ride down to the planet, and she's on the verge of, you know, vomiting. She's like, you know, God is my witness; I will never eat huevos rancheros again. <laughs> you know. And she finally gets to the planet. She stumbles out of the shuttle just in time to trip over the nacelle, land in the mud, and vomit. You know, it's like she she undergoes a lot of indignities, this poor character, because of, you know, this sort of unfortunate uh, neurodivergent wiring that she, she lives with. And she has to overcome it by the end of the story. When a life is in danger, she's able to override these sort of idiosyncrasies of hers by putting the part of her that is a doctor first, the part of her that is sworn to A, do no harm, B, preserve and save life. So when it comes down to it, you know, my favorite moment, you know, not to give away the, all the mechanics of the scene, because it's you know, one of my favorite bits in the book, there's a big action bit at the end when a particular character from the other side, you know, one of the Klingons is in danger, uh, you know, is, is an imminent mortal peril. And it is Dr. Babbitt's, you know, doing something where she has to overcome her innate fears, her innate uh, nature as a germaphobe, and she simply has to power through it, do the heroic thing, and, and, and basically save the day. And in a way, you know, although the, you know, the major sort of uh, military engagement of the story is happening elsewhere, I think in a lot of ways, the culmination of her arc and that storyline represents the moral high point that's the moral victory of the story and in a lot of ways her victory in that moment and what it means for the relationship between her and the character she saves i think is the most important element of the story Mm -hmm. because it has the promise because because of the promise of what it might mean for both sides going forward exactly and you you kind of give a good allusion to to future relationships with the klingons that klingon arc you talked about earlier exactly 
in a lot of ways, it's little moments like this that are going to add up over time. It's, it's not like there was any one thing that changed the direction of history. It was a series of small moments that in aggregate, at some point, they begin to snowball. And at some point, it, it becomes the avalanche. And it becomes you know, the thing that changes the landscape. Mm-hmm. But it has to start with small moments. Yeah, mm-hmm. even just the, the splash of cold water to Kang's face that, like, is everything I've been taught about these people a lie? Right. Have, has, is everything propaganda? Was none of it true? Yeah. It's like, you know, I've been told this my whole life. And yet she assures me that a human braved nature, you know, uh, you know fought a, a monstrosity and fought nature itself and risked life and limb to save her. My, I owe my love's life to a human Starfleet officer. Mm-hmm. What do I do with this? It's like Kang is now, you know, he, he's, he's going to have to sit there and, and ponder, what does this mean? Is everything I've been told wrong? Can I, I, do I have to question everything I hear from my leaders now? And in a way, it, you know, maybe it's because of things like that. That snowballs, maybe that little moment of doubt begins a process that will continue over the next 20, 80, 100 years of his life. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as he grows to be an old man toward the DS9 era when mm-hmm. we rejoin him again, this is the sort of thing. This is where the seeds of change get planted and then begin this is the seeds of change taking root yeah yeah it just occurs to me now just thinking it through like we know in canon that he is one of the people that sits across the negotiating table from Curzon dax right so that's right yeah he has a real hand in shaping the future of relations between the empire and the federation so that's brilliant yeah he's going to be one of the voices of change when the time comes Mm -hmm. and it all has to start with you know first he develops respect for kirk but now this is going to be the mission that plants the seed of, has everything I've been told been on propaganda? Do I have to revisit this? Do I have to start digging into this myself to find the truth? And then that's going to be sort of just one of those. The other thing I like too is also just the purity of his relationship with Mara. Mm-hmm. The purity of his love for her, the sincerity, the, the passion of it. It's like she is his world. She is his everything. So when they save her life, that's huge. You know, he can't just ignore that. To him, this woman is his world. So, I mean, saving her is good, is, is a good in and of itself. But the effect that it's going to have on him because of how much he values her, that's, again, that's one of those unintended good side effects, unintended good consequences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then uh, to cap it off, uh, the moment when uh, Dr. Babbitts falls asleep in the shuttle on the way back to the ship, I was like, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, it was very much like an inversion of the bit with uh, Hicks and Hudson yeah. and aliens. It's like, somebody wake up, Hicks. <laughs> you know, we're on the way down. She's like cursing at Razga because Razga's asleep. It's like, you son of a lizard. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but then on the way back up, it's like, she's. She's powered through. She's overcome the fear. And I realized part of the reason I did that and sort of built that storyline for her was that we were sort of playing up her germophobia a little bit more heavily uh, in the early books of the Vanguard saga, particularly it came to the four in book three. But by the time we revisited the Sagittarius characters, uh, I think in like book seven and eight, like near the, near the end of the saga, that aspect of her character had kind of gotten backburnered. There was really not an opportunity to bring it about, but it also just seemed like it wasn't really there anymore. It wasn't a big part of who she was anymore, the way it was 
in the early books. And in a way that was just sort of one of those, you know, it didn't serve the story. So we didn't lean into it, but looking back, I'm like, well, maybe there's an opportunity to explain how she managed to master this own part of her own personality and sort of take control of it and say, I'm not going to let this dominate me anymore. I'm in control of this. Mm -hmm. So that this, you know, the storyline, her storyline in uh, harm's way in a lot of ways is about her overcoming the hold of neurosis on her psyche and her saying, I am not going to be a prisoner to my own psychosis. You know, I'm going to let, I'm going to power through this and I'm going to find the me that is stronger than this. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I'm going to ask the question that we always ask at the end of these. And uh, it's, it's one that we all know you can't fully answer usually, but uh, is there anything you're currently working on Star Trek wise or otherwise that our listeners might be interested in checking out? I am not currently working on anything hmm. Star Trek related, uh, at least not in terms of novels or TV. Uh, I do have something that might be coming down the pike with Star Trek Explorer magazine, oh, okay. but that hasn't been announced yet. But I think by the time this podcast hits, maybe uh, I'll be able to talk about this. It's probably okay. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to give you any details or whatever, but uh, I do have an idea that has been approved to go forward and I improved to take a shot at something. So I'm going to take a shot at something. Uh, but that's really the only Star Trek thing I have going on. Uh, I mean, my consultancy with Lower Decks ended a couple years ago. My consultancy with Prodigy ended back in March of 2022. So that's done. Uh, I don't have any novels currently under contract. I hope maybe that'll change sometime in early 2023, but I don't know that for sure. Uh, I hope, but I don't know. What I do have coming down the pike, a bunch of different pieces of short fiction, original short fiction in a variety of anthologies. Uh, some have been delayed, should have been out by now, but aren't, but hopefully will be out soon. Uh, they'll probably all hit in a wave in 2023 and 2024. I think I've got like four or five of them in progress at this point. Uh, you know, I think one is uh, sort of a comedic piece for an anthology that my friend Keith DeCandido, a fellow uh, Star Trek veteran, put together. Uh, it was one that he uh, did a Kickstarter for called like the four blank of the apocalypse. Uh, and it's, you know, variations on the four horsemen, but, you know, different you know, somebody did like the four lunch ladies of the apocalypse. Somebody did like, you know, the, uh, you know, the whatever. I did the four development executives uh, <laughs> of the apocalypse. So uh, that's sort of a comedic take on that. And then I uh, I have a piece, let's see, for, there's a piece I just did for uh, an anthology of World War II fiction involving monsters. Can't say too much about that, but uh, the editor's very happy with the story. I did one version before, which he didn't care for. So I wrote a new story, completely different. That one he likes. So that one, we, we you know did a line edit. We're done. It's approved. So that's done. The uh, International Association of Media Tie-In Writers did an anthology where they asked uh, members of the IAMTW, tie-in writers like myself, to pick characters from public domain, uh, you know, fictional characters from like, you know, works that are now public domain. Anybody can play with them pick two of them or more and do a mashup, you know, sort of a so-and-so meets so-and-so. And what I came up with for that was Prospero the Magician from Shakespeare's The Tempest meets Miguel Cervantes' Don Quixote de la Mancha. Ooh. Wow. So I have the deluded Knight of, of La Mancha uh, meeting up with the Magician. 
uh, of the Tempest. That sounds so like I, fun. That's pretty cool. It was fun. Uh, that's called Rough Magic, and that'll be part of the uh, IMTW anthology Double Trouble. Uh, let's see here. There's a space western anthology, uh, which I believe is being put together by an editor named David Boop. Uh, and I believe that's going to come out through Bain in fall of 2023. I think it's called Last Train out of Kepler 223B or something like that. Mm. And my story for that is called Living by the Sword. So that's a, a space western. And again, because it's short fiction, there's really not a lot of details I can spill about it that don't spoil it. I'll just say it's, you know, it's a cool thing about, you know, uh, evaluating your life choices and uh, wondering what to do if you got a second chance. So uh, I hope that you know there, there will be new Star Trek novels in my future. I know I would really love to get my hands on Strange New Worlds because I think that would just be fun as heck. Oh, yeah. and I really would love to I'd love to get into that because I love that show. I do have ideas, but again, you know, until they're bought, gotta kind of no. keep the lid on. Well, until that time, we will we will be excited with the. Uh, I'm going to be revisiting Vanguard books, so yeah, that. that's great. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm always happy to hear that. I might have to uh, talk to you, Jesse, about coming on the show, maybe to talk about those novels because we've never yes, we've never would, done them on the podcast. I would so. love to. That be that be a lot of fun. I, I will warn you, I'm slow going because it's I don't have the audiobook version and time is precious, but I will definitely do it. And also, uh, I would love to have you on my YouTube channel at some point, oh, uh, David, to <laughs> to to talk both of you as well. If we can do uh, do some more talking about those novels as well too, that'd be that really be cool. arranged. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'd love to have you. Well, when you might possibly know about some stuff in the future, where can people find you online to learn about it? Well, uh, obviously, the digital social media landscape is in upheaval right now <laughs> as we come to the end of 2022. To say the least. <laughs> uh, and of course, you know, it's a little bit harder to use handles now in our era of Mastodon, but mm -hmm. uh, Mastodon is a good place to find me, assuming, you know, you don't already find me on Twitter. Let's start with Twitter. Assume, let's assume Twitter doesn't <laughs> implode. Yeah. It very well might, but assuming Twitter is still there, uh, I will probably still use it for promotional purposes. I am David Allen Mack at, uh, on Twitter. That's David Allen, A-L-A-N. M-A-C-K. Whereas on other social media platforms, uh, I went with the much simpler, just David Mac. Uh, so I am David Mac on Mastodon uh, at the instance wandering.shop. So that'd be at David Mac at wandering.shop. So that's where you find me on Mastodon. And I'm also David Mac on post.news. Those are the two sort of Twitter alternatives I think I am most likely uh, to keep using. Uh, I tried Hive, I tried Counter Social, uh, I even looked at Tribal and a couple others. And the only two that really seem to be working for me right now are Mastodon, which I like because it's decentralized and mm -hmm. can't be bought by some idiot billionaire and messed with. Post news could be bought by a billionaire and messed with because um, it is a walled garden in, in that respect but it's got a nice layout and uh it's very versatile uh, i think it could use a little streamlining uh, i think mastodon is probably got better longevity but post is not bad so and if you want to find me on facebook uh and you just want to get the author stuff and you don't really want to hear all of my weird you know, political ranting, because, you know, I, I could be kind of a left-wing idiot. Um, you know, if you just want to get the book news, if you just want the book news, you can follow my author page on Facebook at The 
David Mack. Uh, that's just the the good stuff. That's just, you know, what books I have coming out, what short stories, this, that, the other thing, where I'm appearing, conventions, uh, with none of my, you know, related uh, political idiocy. But you also don't get my cool cat pictures. So that, there you go. Fair. Politics and cats. <laughs> Let's see. That's all we need. <laughs> I love my cats. I love my booze. And I don't love politics, but I can't stop ranting about it like a moron. <laughs> you and you and me both. I think we have very solid. I think both uh, your writings and my YouTube channel are Star Trek, uh, cats, and uh, politics. It's really the genesis <laughs> of the three rules. <laughs> it's, it's the Venn diagram. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a circle, really. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, Jesse, where can people find you? Uh, you can also find me uh, pretty much the same thing on Mastodon and Twitter if it hasn't imploded yet. And then you can find me, uh, my main stuff on YouTube at Jesse Gender, where I do video essays on Star Trek, politics, and cats as well. <laughs> Mainly the first two, but my cat Newt does show up from time to time. Uh, and then I also have a secondary channel called Jesse Gender After Dark, where I rant about uh, books and review TV shows and things like that and give uh, uh, generally favorable reviews to Star Trek book, uh, book authors. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, no, you can check me out there if you like my just sort of review content and sort of random off the cuff random stuff that I do there. David, you might uh, next Monday, there's a video I have coming out on that channel that you might uh, get a little bit of joy out of. So because I think mm. some of your books get uh, get a mention in that Monday. video, right. So keep an eye out. Okay. Ooh, um, that should be yeah. out by the time this uh, podcast drops. So yes, Very so nice. check that out. Nice. So um, that's that's pretty much all my stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, my nebula as well. If you want to check me out there, so excellent. And yeah, you can find the podcast. Uh, we're on Mastodon now as well uh, at Positively Trek at Masthead Social is the instance we're at there. Uh, we're also still on Twitter, just at Positively Trek, but it's mostly just links pointing to Mastodon as long as Twitter still allows that, because apparently there's some issue there. Hey, thank you so much for joining us, David and uh, Jesse. Thanks, thank you once again for uh, co-hosting. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Please always, like I said, if it's audiobooks, I will always be here. And if it's on page, give me some time and I will also be here. <laughs> Uh, thank you for having me on, Dan. It's always a pleasure, Dan. Always a pleasure. Really enjoy having you here. So, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, as always, stay positive. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.